Good morning and welcome to Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. A new historical novel takes readers back in time to 1943 Harlem. In just a moment, my interview with the author of Strivers Row. And coming up later, a hair-raising interview between Cityscape producer Vivian Perry and a Harlem hairstylist. You have people with helicopter on their head. You have, like myself, I do the Twin Towers. That's coming up on Cityscape. But first, we're joined by Kevin Baker. Kevin's the author of a new historical novel called Strivers Row. Kevin, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Strivers Row is the final volume of your New York trilogy called City of Fire. Your first historical novel, Dreamland, recreated turn-of-the-century New York and followed several first- and second-generation immigrants through their lives in the city. Right. Your second book, Paradise Alley, focused on the 1863 draft riots. Uh Uh-huh. Now here's Strivers Row. Yeah. Why put a spotlight on Harlem in 1943 for this book? Well, it strikes me that these are three key groups at three key moments in the life of the city and of the United States. The, the, the books focus on three main outsider groups. In Dreamland, it's Jewish immigrants uh, from Eastern Europe. In Paradise Alley, it's mostly Irish immigrants uh, from the escaping the famine. Uh, and in, uh, in Strivers Row, it's African Americans who, of course, are not immigrants in the sense that we usually think of them. They're here pretty much as early as, as uh, white Europeans in uh, New York, but uh, who, were, who were more than ever an outsider group. So it seems to me that these three groups uh, really were people who all were people who were not wanted at all in what was originally this very Anglo-Protestant country, and yet they forced their way into this democracy. As with your previous books, Strivers Row allows fictional characters to interact with historical characters. In this book, Malcolm Little, who will later become Malcolm X, is a main character. Yeah, this is the first time that I've focused so much on a major historical figure. Uh, with with Malcolm X, um, but it just struck me that his story was so fascinating that I I uh, was really uh, drawn to it. A lot has been written about Malcolm X, including his own autobiography. What do you think that you're exposing to the reader that's new? The autobiography was really the inspiration, in the sense of not only what a great iconic American text it is, but also in the sense that um, there's it's a text where Malcolm is very much telling us what he wants us to hear. You know, it's it's a conversion text. It's also a uh, bid for leadership. And in it, he makes himself out to have been kind of the baddest of the bad and the blackest of the black. You know, he's this guy who's been down to the very depths of the African-American experience in America. And therefore, his rise has been all the more dramatic and should qualify him all the more to lead what was then the emerging black nationalist civil rights movement in America. And, you know, it's 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 a great, great American document. But like any such sort of bid for leadership, there's a certain amount of propaganda in it. And I wanted to kind of delve beneath that and find what the, what the real story was. And I, and I think the, the real life of Malcolm X is even more fascinating and even more devastating and difficult than what he describes in the book, in, in, in his uh, memoir. You uncover much of what he went through in his childhood, a childhood plagued with poverty, mental illness, and racial prejudice. Yeah, it was a, really a terrible childhood, and, and even worse than he makes out. A uh, childhood where, where he not only went through the, um, the, the, where he not only endured the things that you would expect a poor uh, black kid to endure in America in the 1930s, but also uh, one which was made even worse by the early death of his father and by his mother's um, uh, fall into, uh, into schizophrenia. 
he consistently thinks about that throughout the book. Right. It's, it's one of the things about it in the book is that he's um, constantly thinking of the fact that his mother has been left in this uh, mental institution in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Something, of course, Malcolm had nothing to do with, but he still feels very guilty about. How much liberty do you take with someone's life like Malcolm X, someone who existed in reality? Yeah, I, I tried to uh, cleave as closely as possible to the historical record. But, of course, the historical record went beyond uh, his autobiography. In the autobiography, there are things which are um, obviously not true. Um, and part of this is probably the problem of an of a autobiography that came out posthumously you know, after Malcolm was dead. Uh, in part, it was uh, having been the fact that it was dictated to Alex Haley, an author who had his own complex relationship with the truth, shall we say. But also, it's, you know, there are things, for instance, he describes a scene where the very first time he goes dancing, he's such a great dancer that he, clear, he and his partner not only clear the floor, but Duke Ellington stands up and bows to them in tribute. Now, I don't think Malcolm really believed this had actually happened at the time he wrote it or dictated it. Uh, but, you know, so I wanted to kind of get, you know, beneath that and see what, uh, what you know, I think the, the real truth was kind of more more interesting even than, than, than those sorts of stories he tells. In the book, you have Malcolm dancing in the Savoy. Yes, and I have him dancing in the Savoy, and it's, it's you know, he has danced before, and he does very well, but it's more because of this partner who comes up here at this uh, what what seems to be this mysterious uh, white woman he meets at the Savoy um, and is a little bit older and, and, and takes him through the paces there. Miranda, who turns out to be the sister of another of your main characters, and this character is a preacher. His name is Jonah Dove. He's the grandson of a character first introduced in another of your books, Paradise Alley. Yes. Uh, in Paradise Alley, a lot of the book was centered around this, this interracial family living in the lower wards of Manhattan. Uh, true story, uh, which I just, uh, you know, adapted slightly. This family, their Irish mother, uh, black father, and these horrible lynch mobs that are unleashed by the draft riots come to kill the father. He's not there at the time, so instead they try to kill his 13-year-old son. And his mother goes out into the street alone to, to fight the, this mob for the life of her son. Actually happened, you know. Um, anyway, in, in the novel, I make them the Dove family, uh, Billy Dove, name of one of the very first escaped slaves to live in Seneca Village in what's now Central Park. And their son, Milton, is the, is the kid who's almost killed by the mob. In Strivers Row, Milton is now grown up. He's, uh, you know, Milton is now grown up and he's in his 90s. He has become a uh, kind of self-taught preacher and he has literally saved this group of escaped slaves by himself, brought them all the way up the west side in the great New York exodus of, of black Americans and built one of the big churches in Harlem. And now his son, Jonah, has taken over, has inherited his pulpit, uh, but doesn't feel himself up to the task at all. He feels that uh, what's going on in, in Europe with, uh, with Jews will happen to African Americans next, and he doesn't feel equipped to help his people in this. Describe for us the scene in the book, the scene where Jonah Dove and Malcolm Little meet for the first time. They meet for the first time when Malcolm is a sandwich vendor on the Yankee Clipper line, the train line down from Boston to New York, which he was in reality. Um, and this group of drunken white servicemen are harassing uh, Jonah. And they're remarking on the fact that Jonah is very light-skinned, 
feeling which will play an important part in the whole book and in his life. And he's with this with this woman who's his wife who seems much darker. And, you know, so they're kind of harassing him about this and, and making out that he's white and, and uh, you know, just trying to look for any excuse to beat him up. And Malcolm, although he's a little repelled by Jonah himself, feels he's kind of high hat and, you know, has airs, um, nonetheless tries to come to his, comes to his rescue and ends up beating up one of the servicemen and throwing him off the train. Again, something which actually happened uh, and happened in defense of the uh, train steward, as I have in the book, too. You know, the interesting thing about Malcolm, for all that we think of him as this great justifier of violence, you know, in the received image of him that's come down, it's unclear that he ever committed the violent act, except in defense of people he loved. What's also interesting about this scene is that after he has this encounter, he jumps off the train into the waters of a place called Buzzards Bay. Yeah, which, which again, is something that actually happened. He actually, after this incident, he stood in front of this train load full of people, all gawking at him, that he just beaten up this, this much bigger-seeming <laughs> sergeant, and he looks at them and smiles and jumps into the water. You know, an incident unexplained in the biographies of him, but uh, which which becomes one of the things I speculate on throughout the book. So why did he do this? And in yeah. the end, Jonah Dove asks him, "Why did he do that?" And he answers, "Yeah, Jonah, Jonah asks him, why? You know, why? Why did you do this?" And he and he basically says, "You know, to get attention, which a lot was a lot of what he wanted at that point in his life was just to be heard, to be seen. You know, and this I this I think is one of the things that kind of gets at the heart of the whole." Uh, drive for integration in this country. You know, there were certain advantages to sec- to Jim Crow days in the sense that African Americans had basically their own towns, their own cities within cities, whereby they would actually run a lot of the businesses in that. And there's a, there's a certain feeling that, like, you know, that was something we should have to this day. And that's a certain part of the driving notion behind black nationalism in the first place. We can have our own community and not have to live with these people who so despise us. And it's very understandable, but I think it always breaks down on this idea of people like Malcolm. They want to, you know, that, that he wants to be seen. He wants to be noticed. That he wants to, you know, compete in this, in this larger uh, white and mixed world around him. And I think that's one reason why, why segregation always breaks down, even self-imposed segregation. And very opposite to the thoughts of your other main character, Jonah Dove, who can pass for white. He's very light-skinned and has visions of leaving the black world behind. Well, this is the other uh, strand here. You know, know, this book is set on the eve of the modern civil rights movement. And Jonah sort of represents, if you will, the, the king movement, the idea of, like, we will demand integration. Malcolm, of course, represents the separatist black nationalism part. But then there's another strand kind of, untalked about for obviously uh, very understandable reasons, which was the, the idea of passing, which a good number of uh, African Americans did in this period. And, and it's very, again, very understandable, you know, not willing to be, live their entire lives as second, third class citizens, uh, if they could, went out and passed in the white world as white. Of course, this led to also, this was also a terrible sacrifice. This was something where people had to give up their former families and acquaintances and homes. But it was something that went on. And in the book, uh, Jonah has done this in college. I mean, caught at it. 
and is contemplating doing it again. He sort of sneaks off on uh, and periodically during the weekday and will try to pose for a few hours as a white person. Uh, and his sister is doing it full time, living in the village, working as this singer and, and posing as white. And and that's based on the real life, very closely on the real life stories of Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who passed for white for a while at, at, up in Colgate um, before getting caught, and his sister, who who again passed for white and was a singer actually in the village. Stravers Road does an amazing job of detailing the frustration that black people in Harlem felt about the way blacks were treated throughout the country. 1943 was really the climax of what was a very turbulent home front. There are white-on-black race riots throughout the country. At the same time, millions of young black men are being drafted, sent to these basic training camps, usually in the South, often put under white Southern officers and treated badly. And then whenever they go into town, they are uh, routinely arrested, beaten, even shot and killed by white Southern lawmen who were appalled at the idea of a black man with a gun. And those who survived wrote home about it. Yeah, those who are survived. And, and co- they're constantly writing home about this. The husbands and fathers and brothers and sweethearts of, of people in home writing back saying, you know, we're being treated like this. And so you can almost feel the anger growing in Harlem as the summer goes by. And people recognize it. You know, uh, LaGuardia, who had some sympathy for uh, African Americans, trying to keep tensions down and making speeches, and, you know, and, they have, and also on the other hand, they have more cops in Harlem than ever before. But it doesn't do any good ultimately. And this riot breaks out over a, a relatively minor incident, but uh, as, they, as they so often do. You mentioned Fiorella LaGuardia, who makes a cameo appearance in your book. In addition to the main characters, there are other real-life people who turn up in this book. Oh, yeah, there's uh, any number of them. Um, You know, Adam Clayton Powell, Jr., uh, who's a wonderful character, uh, the inimitable Collier Brothers. Uh, they were the, the the great hoarders of New York City history, the legendary hoarders, uh, these kind of uh, very brilliant white brothers from an old family living up in Harlem uh, who just went completely crazy and filled their apartment with everything, like 14 years' worth of newspapers, uh, 14 grand pianos, uh, an entire disassembled Ford, you know, just all kinds of things. And they lived there. You know, Con Ed eventually cut off the heat and electricity because they wouldn't pay the bills, but they just kept living there in this kind of horrible, you know, packed-in, hermit-like existence. I love the scene <laughs> in the book when one of the brothers comes out and asks someone, please make sure kids don't throw rocks at our windows anymore. Right, right. This this actually went on. This actually this sort of thing actually happened. They would Periodically, one or both of them would appear in Harlem, and they were kind of like, considered like these ghosts coming out of nowhere, which is what they must have looked like. Um, but, you know, they were kind of tolerated by the community, who kind of was, was kind of amused by them, actually, and kind of fascinated by them. There are all kinds of rumors that they were digging tunnels under other people's houses and would you know come up in your bedroom at night? They were the real kind of uh, kind of ghosty men, as they were called of, of the time. The book is also so visually descriptive. I mean, you can really see Harlem, 1943, with sailors doing their thing and people all over the streets and this intermingling. How did you go about painting that picture? Uh, yeah, I, I went about painting it through all kinds of great descriptions written about it at the t- at the time from. Um, you know, some of the many terrific black writers up there, uh, people like Baldwin, like Dorothy West. Uh, also in Amsterdam News, there was a wonderful columnist named Dan Burley who wrote about uh, everything, politics, entertainment, sports, and was also kind of writing little mood pieces on what life was like on Harlem streets and just jotting down everything he could, like every a b- bit of slang. So it's all this kind of like early, you know, Harlem jive that he was picking up. And it's, it's uh, you know, it, it's just fascinating to read. You know, I just simply tried to, you know, craft it and shape it a little. Now, the book, of course, recreates black history. You, of course, are a white novelist. Have you suffered? 
Have you suffered any type of criticism or backlash? Very little. You know, I've, I've been interested to see the reaction to it. You know, that was a lot of the fear of my publisher, for instance, that I would have this, um, that there'd be this kind of uh, angry black reaction to this. You know, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, uh, a writer doesn't fear controversy. He fears being ignored, you know. But I really haven't felt that at all. I mean, I've had the, the thing that's been great about it is that I've had actually kind of uh, more uh, African-Americans at my readings than ever before, you know, including majority black audiences. And people have asked, you know, uh, probing and, and, and insightful questions, but nothing, oddly enough, much more has been... Um, from uh, white reviewers, uh, one of whom felt I was terribly unfair to the poor Irish. You know, and I'm, I'm mostly Irish myself. Uh, what can you say? Uh, another one who felt I had too many, uh, referring to the uh, passage where I have um, Milton's mother going out into the street to rescue him, which I recount briefly at the front of Strivers Row. He felt I had too many episodes of white people saving black people. A mother going out into the street to, to save her son in a documented incident I, seems legitimate to me, but you know, but yeah, it's, it's you know it's it's not any longer 1967 and Siren's Confessions of Nat Turner. You know, I think things have changed from that. Uh, I think people are not um, quite that sensitive. They're kind of more willing to admit, I, at least I would hope, that people can write about different groups. This is also the last in the series, City yeah. of Fire. What are you working on now? The next book I have a contract for is a, a nonfiction history of New York City baseball, which should be a lot of fun to do, a great break you know, for that. But then after that, I'm, I'm sure there'll be other historical novels and other novels about New York. Kevin Baker, your latest book is Stravers Row. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. The title of Baker's book refers to West 138th Street and West 139th Street between 7th and 8th Avenues. That's the area known as Stravers Row. Nowadays, if you walk those and surrounding streets, you're bound to be struck by the number of hair salons and braiding shops in the neighborhood. For African-American women, these businesses are a key part of financial independence and a foundation of the cultural life of the community. Cityscape producer Vivian Perry spoke to one award-winning hairstylist whose ambitions have won her worldwide acclaim. Hi, my name is Veronica Forbes, and I've been doing hair for 33 years. And I was born in Kingston, Jamaica, and while I was in Jamaica as a little girl, I remember my mom used to send me to the beauty salon in order to get my hair done. But, you know, I love doing hair from a little girl, so when she told, like, the hairstylist tells me to come in at 10, I used to tell my mother it's like at 8 o'clock, to get there like two hours early. This way I can able to help the hairstylist, hand her the paper, hand her the roller. And then from there, you know, I had such a great interest in doing hair. When I said when I get out of high school, I wanted to go straight into beauty school. My mom didn't want me to do that because at the time, they weren't making a lot of money doing hair. And what happened when I went into beauty school, I was like the number one student in beauty school, always anxious to learn, always hold my hands up first, always volunteer to do things, even though I messed up sometimes. But I remember one teacher I had by the name of Mrs. Davis. I went to Wilfred Academy in Brooklyn. And Mrs. Davis said, I am going to make a great hairstylist out of you. And I stayed in beauty school. I was I graduated and went on working with some of the top people in the business. And um, the rest is history. 
And now we're at your beauty salon here on 126th, Veronica's Beautyrama. Yes. Would you be able to explain the range of stuff you do here? Okay. We are a air, like an air care center. We, we have a barber on premises. We, does, we do hair weave. We do a system called a netting system. The netting system is for people with thin and bald spot. Like people have no front, we build them a front. They have no top, we build them a top. And that's why my motto on my salon is that if you can't grow it, Veronica will sew it and no one will know it. If they don't have it to do it, then we have to glue it. But we do a lot of hair replacement in Veronica's Beautyrama. We do perms, cut style, and we do the same old-fashioned press and curl. We still do that because it's a lot of die-hard press and curl customers out there. But at the same time, you know, one of our top things is the hair weave, the hair replacement, because it's a lot of people who are losing their hair, not only old people. You have young people who are losing their hair. And in order for us to stay ahead of our competitors, we have to come up with a system that we can able to put some hair up there. And that's basically what we do here. So another reason that someone might get a weave is because they've damaged their hair with all these chemical treatments. Yes, some of them get a, it. It depends. You have I have client that comes in here that have a, a regular length hair and they want some the hair a little bit longer because what happened is you know they just tired of it being short. They want it longer. Then you have the ones that have damaged their hair and just have a little bit up there, and they can't stand themselves, and they don't like wigs. So they come in, and they ask for a hair weave. And my job is to make them feel better, because what happened is people get weaves for different reasons. Sometimes people might have a certain texture hair that they don't like. Like myself, my hair is actually shoulder length, but I end up having a hair unit on my hair. You know, I do a unit because what happened, it's easier for me to deal with somebody else's hair than dealing with my hair. I suppose the one thing I've noticed is since I've moved to New York, just the number of uh, beauty salons in the UK, I just, I don't see so many. Well, to be honest with you, Afro-American women spend more money in this industry more than the average Caucasian woman because what happened, they have to do so much to their hair. Let's say they come in for a hair weave and it all depends on what their problem is if they are ball in the front and ball in the top it take at least four or five hours doing that hair because what you do you build in the front and you build in the top if they have no hair in the back you have to build a back too so it all depends on what the problem is but the average head if it's a perm then you can get out within about an hour and a half two hours if it's wash and set then maybe about an hour an hour to hour 15 minutes depends on what the style is but the thing about it is is that some braids if they do the micro braids the micro braids can take all day up to seven eight nine hours so i mean it seems to me then that hair is a really important part of especially afro-american women's identity mm -hmm. they will not have food some of them but they will come and get their hair done because they want to look good so it's just a, a, a pride about them in getting their hair done. I wondered, I mean, I know that if I walk down the street and I, I look at other girls in the UK, I can tell from their hairstyle, you know, if a girl's got long hair that she's this kind of a girl, if she's got short cropped hair that she's another type of a girl. Can you, are there those kind of associations with hairstyles for Afro-Americans? 
Yes, you can. Now, Yuki, we do have conservative Afro-American. If you're in the corporate world, now, I wear my hair purple, as you see. I mean, I would never give someone purple hair to go on a corporate job because what happened, their job rely and the way how they look. Now, you can see some of the girls, the younger kids walking out there, they have these fly hairstyles. Yes, because they can get away with it because some of them are just in college or some of them have jobs that don't mind, but the corporate woman, the corporate Afro-American, you, they have to be a little bit more conservative. And does conservative mean looking more kind of, having more kind of a Caucasian hairstyle then? Yes, more of a Caucasian hairstyle, whether it's a straight, it's a straight page boy or, you know, whether you have it just, you know, curl, you know, curly, but neat. Not something, you know, with red on one side and blue on the other and pink on the other. No, you can't give a person who is in a corporate job something like that. Moving from hair that you wear every day to special hair, to your fantasy hair, Mm -hmm. I was looking in your window outside and you've got these amazing photographs of these beautiful girls with just the most amazing hairstyles, purples, and um, I think I saw the Twin Towers on someone's head. I've never seen anything like that before in my life. (laughs) Where did this, uh, this fantasy hairstyling come from? Well, you know, to be honest with you, the first, very first time since I came in this business, and I see fantasy here, it was Detroit, Michigan. I don't know if it had started any other place, but I had learned it in Detroit, Michigan. Detroit, Michigan is like the hair capital of the world. That's where all the hair entertainers are from because they do the hair war. We had a hair war at the Apollo Theater that I was a part of, and we gave a press party here. The Apollo Theater is around the corner from the salon. So what we did, we did the press party this Saturday night. Sunday we rock and roll at the Apollo Theater. We brought the house down in the Apollo Theater. Okay, now you're going to have to explain to me what hair wars are. Okay. Yes, hair war is what they bring some of the best entertainers in the country, across the United States, on the one roof. And believe me, the word get around. If you are a person that master your craft in Detroit, they're going to bring you in. If you're a person that master your craft in New York City, they're going to bring you in. It's not a competition. What it does is just for entertainment. You have people with helicopter on their head. You have, like myself, I do the Twin Towers. You have people with with, um, planes. You have people, you name it. Everything that you can think of, it's on top of a head. And it's just exciting. The crowd love it. The audience love it. And that's what Air War is. It's not only in New York. It's all across the country. It's just some of the best of the best, the cream of the crop in the business that come together on the one roof. Talking about building a fantasy hairstyle then, you start with a mannequin, you map it out there, and then how would you actually get something like the Twin Towers to stay on somebody's head? Okay, when you do a hair fantasy, all of the fantasy pieces are holed up by a ponytail. So when you're making your, let's say you're making a leaf, you know basically it has to be attached to something to hold on the head. There are some of my fantasy pieces, I might have eight or nine, ten pieces on the head, but it's attached to a ponytail. You put that in with hairpins 
and T-pins. And what happened, you got to make sure your ponytail is strong enough to hold those pieces. Because if not, when those models going down the runway, they lose pieces. So once you get a grip of what you're doing, you know basically what can hold on the person's head. With the Twin Towers, I know I had to set it on a base. Because you're talking about two towers, one on the right and one on the left. So what I had to do, I had to sit a base on the client here and stick the two Twin Towers on either side, and then build around the Twin Towers with other hair. So it's an art to it. You just have to sit down and map it out and see where you're going from there. And apart from the runway, where else would you see fantasy hair? Fantasy is at the hair shows, in competitions. People are having a fashion show and they want something extra and, you know, basically stuff like that. You will not see fantasy here walking down the street because it's not practical to see somebody with a twin tower walking down the street or somebody with a big flower petal on their head walking down the street. That's not practical. This is a show. These are show-stopping hairstyles. And finally, you mentioned that, you know, it's a learning curve being a hairstylist. Have there ever been any hair disasters? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In terms of like, okay, if I do make a mistake, what I do, like take for instance, I'm doing a haircut and I realize that I might cut one side shorter than the other and I don't want to freak the customer out. I might say to the client, whether Miss Jones or Miss whoever sitting in my chair, I say Miss Jones, you know, I think you'd look better with one side a little bit shorter. Let me tell you, jazz it up a little bit. You're stuck in that same old way all the time. And trust me, it get across real good. 95% of the time, they will go along with it. Or if they don't go along with it, then what I'll do, i say, well, listen, I have decided a little bit shorter. I just want you to know, this way when you go home, you don't call back and scream at me. So, you know, it, it, it all depends on the client that's sitting there because you have some people who are iffy, iffy about cutting their hair. And once you get, because they, they have such bad experience in the past that they don't want a, 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 a hairstylist is scissors happy because you do have some of them out there that scissors happy you want to trim they give you a complete haircut no I don't work like that because a cut and a trim is two different price so I try my best to do what the client asks me to do but once in a blue moon we do mess up sometimes but you're a very creative lady <laughs> thank you very much Veronica Forbes is a hairstylist in Harlem she spoke to Cityscape producer Vivian Perry And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks for listening. The podcast of Cityscape gets support from WFUV's contributing members. Find out more at WFUV.org.